Chapter One of Stories of Symphonic Music. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories of Symphonic Music by Lawrence Gilman. Chapter One The Orchestra as Poet, Painter, and Dramatist. How can the orchestra, without the aid of voices or pantomime or scenery, tell the story of don quixote paint a picture of the sea or describe the visions of a dying man asks an intelligent but somewhat puzzled layman i have always thought of instrumental music he goes on to say as the art of arranging tones according to more or less binding laws of design and effect and yet i hear constant talk nowadays of the expressive capacity of music its ability to paint pictures tell stories enact dramas what briefly is meant by the expressive or pictorial or descriptive capacity of music perhaps it may be possible to tell him briefly as he requests music in the old days the days before beethoven let us say was outside of the church and the opera house primarily an art of pure design the musician of those days was concerned mainly with the arrangement of tones according to certain well-defined rules and conventions to the end of producing a euphonious and beautiful pattern of sound the symphonies of mozart the early symphonies of beethoven had no other aim than to be beautiful music was then as had been aptly said a species of sensuous mathematics the musician who in the year seventeen ninety seven set out to compose a symphony proceeded according to very definite rules he must invent what was called a first theme usually rather vigorous and assertive in character and a second theme of contrasting character usually of a gentler and more feminine quality these themes were then developed at length presented in different keys altered as to rhythm harmony and instrumentation in whatever manner was made possible by the composer's skill and the fertility of his invention finally the two themes were recalled in their original state and the first movement of the symphony was at an end the composer had accomplished a complete musical organism in what was called among his craft sonata form he might then proceed with the other movements of his symphony which must also be constructed according to certain specific laws always he must proceed according to rule his second theme for example must be sounded in a key which bore a hard and fast relationship to the key of his first theme and if his symphony began let us say in f major he must end in f major or in some closely related key it would never for a moment have occurred to him this excellent eighteenth-century music-maker to begin a serious composition in f major and end it say in c sharp minor that would have seemed an aberration of the most preposterous kind our eighteenth-century instrumental composer then was a builder of tonal edifices of a very plain and solid kind which must be proportioned and fashioned strictly according to rule moreover his constructive material so to speak was of the sparest his range of harmony was extremely small his melodic patterns were simple in outline and of limited expressiveness 
His rhythms were square-cut and obvious, his orchestral technique of the most meagre order. There were, it is true, composers prior to the 19th century who wrote a crude kind of orchestral programme music, music which aimed to describe scenes and events, to picture aspects of nature and define states of mind. Karl von Dittersdorf, 1739-1799, composed a number of symphonies descriptive of Ovid's Metamorphoses, The Downfall of Phaeton, Actian's Transformation into a Deer, Andromeda's Rescue by Perseus, Phineas with his friends in the mountains, Justin Heinrich Knecht, 1752-1817, anticipated certain features of the Pastoral Symphony in his Tableau Musical de la Nature, composed when Beethoven was fourteen years old, and Haydn gave to certain of his multiple symphonies naively indicative titles, The Hunt, The Morning, Fire, but such manifestations of the programmatic tendency bore little relation to the really serious and important musical art of the period. The symphonist of Haydn's day little dreamed of a time when men of his trade would erect tonal structures of strange and fantastic shape, from materials whose rarity and richness were beyond his conception, and that within these gorgeous and curiously wrought structures dramas of human passion and emotion comedies and tragedies would be enacted for other men to see and to be moved thereby yet that is what happened as the years went by musicians began to discern that the art in which they were working contained singular and unsuspected possibilities they began by laborious and slow experiment and by unconscious inspiration to evolve new harmonies more subtle and complex than the old, which thrilled them oddly. Their melodies took on a freer, more pliant, more expressive character. Their rhythms became more varied and supple. Their instrumentation richer, fuller, more complex. Then it dawned upon them that this art of theirs, which had been but a kind of inspired and innocent pattern-weaving, might be made to express definite emotions, moods, experiences, even many things in the material world, without the aid of scenery, singers, or singing actors. They found that certain combinations and sequences of tones could be made to convey to the hearer certain more or less definite feelings and ideas, that minor harmonies in slow and grave rhythms suggested grief or depression, and that, conversely, Harmonies in the major mode, in rapid and energetic movement, suggested gaiety or jubilation or relief. And then, of course, there were directly imitative effects which might be employed to suggest an aspect of nature or to aid in the telling of a story. The songs of birds, the whistling of wind, the crash of thunder, the rhythmic tramping of armies, the trumpets and drums of martial conflict the horn fanfares of the chase, for all these things suggested easily and naturally their analogies in tone. But it soon became evident to the composer that no matter how intense and vivid his music might be, it could be made to express unaided only general emotions, moods, passions. He could say, as does Chopin, for example, in the funeral march in his B-flat minor sonata, I am sad, but he could not say why he was sad. 
He could not say, I am sad because my mother has died, or because my country has been vanquished. So, to supply this need, to make it possible for his music to speak both eloquently and concretely, the composer called in the aid of the written and associated word, and the miracle was accomplished. Upon the score of his symphony or his tone poem, he wrote, for example, the title Don Quixote. This title he made known to his audience, and the hearers, with this clue, were thus made aware that they were listening to an expression in tones, tones of a kind unimagined by Haydn or Mozart, tones of marvellous poignancy and vividness, of the dreams and longings and passions and griefs of a particular person whose story they intimately knew, the definite emotions and events of a definite drama, rich in comedy, pathos, tenderness, and human fascination. This, then, is the miracle of modern programme music. This is why we say of it that it is capable of voicing comedy or tragedy, pathos or ecstasy. This is why, in brief, we may speak of its expressive capacity. The growth of the art in this direction has been as steady as it has been amazing. Music with Haydn and Mozart, it is always to be remembered that we are discussing here only symphonic music, was, as has been said, largely a weaving of tonal arabesques, innocent of meaning or definitive expression. The great Beethoven came and transformed its naive tones into new and powerful sonorities, developing, expanding, discovering, until he had endowed it with a novel and unfamiliar eloquence. Schubert followed him, adding new effects of harmony, new and unparalleled ways of grouping tones, and filling the art with a fresh and wonderful exuberance, making it sing with a new tenderness and ecstasy. He left it a richer, a more amply expressive medium than he had found it. Came Berlioz, a master of orchestral utterance, of orchestral delineation. He made of music the handmaid of romance and passion, as he found them in the world's drama and poems and novels. Franz Liszt, a man of imagination and intrepid individuality, added still other notes to the instrument, enlarged its compass, increased its sonority. Under him the symphony renounced its strict allegiance to the classic forms and became frankly a medium of dramatic and poetic expression. He made a thing which he called a symphonic poem, in which the music was conceived and evolved, not in accordance with those classic rules of form of which we have spoken, but in accordance with the outlines of a chosen poem or a drama, so that he was able to illustrate in music with the aid of title or descriptive text, the story of Hamlet or the Divine Comedy, or Orpheus or Tasso or Prometheus. Wagner, though his field was not the concert room but the opera house, so enlarged the possibilities of tonal speech as to make it virtually a new language. His genius yielded, with magical fertility, a bewildering wealth of novel harmonic, melodic, and orchestral ideas, ideas which have been appropriated to the music of the concert hall by all those who have followed him. And so we come to the music of our own time, which is but a logical and inevitable result of a century of growth and evolution. What, above all, is characteristic of it? First, its devotion to a programme, 
to a literary or dramatic or pictorial subject our modern tone poet as we aptly call him having found ready to his hand an art which can convey with extraordinary vividness moods of longing and despair ecstasy and jubilation must make it still more specific and articulate he writes a huge orchestral work and calls it let us say death and transfiguration presenting with it an elaborate poem descriptive of the agonies and hallucinations the memories and visions of a dying man he then invites us to find in his music a description which he produces by means of every harmonic melodic rhythmic and orchestral device at his command on the subject which he has set before us to achieve his end to express all those varied emotions of anguish terror longing despair aspiration triumph he stops at nothing he heaps dissonance upon dissonance he writes in several keys at once he assaults our ears with what would have seemed in the placid soul of haydn the pandemonium of a madhouse yet if he be a genius we are swayed and enthralled we even derive a double pleasure from this new kind of artwork which is at once music and drama such in brief is the method of the modern tone poet he is as has been seen both musician and dramatist symphonist and poet nor is this all he can be a painter as well and can by the aid of suggestion and the broad analogies of his tonal palette limn for us with his instrument such an exquisite and magical picture of the dawn as charles martin loeffler paints in his orchestral fantasy after verlaine la bonne chanson or such a portrait as is limned by strauss in his don quixote of the crack-brained and lovable knight of cervantes music to-day can annotate the art of the painter as witness the symphonic commentary by the swiss composer hans huber on certain paintings by berklin it can be sportively delineative of personalities as witness sir edward elgar's orchestral characterization of the peculiarities of various of his friends it can be portentously metaphysical as in strauss's formidable alzo sprach darathustra it has become in brief a tongue of all life End of chapter one